Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, July 8th. We begin with details on a new study focusing on the serious impacts the pandemic has had on Calgarians living in poverty. We discuss the research with the executive director of Vibrant Communities Calgary. A new report on climate change says disasters like the fire that destroyed Lytton, B.C. last week are going to become more frequent in the coming years. We dig into the report with a professor of environmental studies. From Uganda to Ethiopia to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, we hear the personal story of Miriam Husser, a Canadian bush pilot who just penned her first book titled, They Call Me Sky Hunter. And finally, it's an eye-popping way to spread the stampede spirit. We speak with Brad Dezotel, president of Fireworks Spectaculars, to get details on Friday night's four-city fireworks show that will light up Calgary, Edmonton, Red Deer, and Lethbridge. Low-income Calgarians taking the brunt of the pandemic as they were most likely to lose their jobs, their savings, and suffer from not being able to pay bills and, as well, food insecurity on top of all that. To talk about a new report is the Executive Director of Vibrant Communities Calgary, Megan Reed. Good morning, Megan. Good morning. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Can you break it down? Uh, You know, what was this report about? What were you looking for as you delved into uh, how the pandemic affected folks? Absolutely. So throughout the pandemic, we've really been looking at the numbers side of this equation. So we know that almost 80,000 Calgarians were at risk of falling into poverty or have fallen into poverty because of COVID-19. And what we wanted to do in this story is to really understand the human elements, the story and the experiences of people who lived in poverty um, to understand also where we need to go next. And what we learned is that the impacts were even more devastating um, to people and their families than even we were expecting in this study. The economics of it, Megan, something very much the focus, but no shortage of reports during the pandemic about deteriorating deteriorating mental and physical health during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Were, Were those two worse for people in poverty or racialized groups? Absolutely. So we did see that disproportionate impact to women, racialized groups, um, and those who are already in poverty across the board. But the stories that we heard when it came to physical and mental health were, were really concerning. So we heard a story of somebody who um, was living in extreme dental pain because they could not afford to go to the dentist and because they had lost their job, they had lost that insurance. We heard stories of people going down to one meal a day or skipping meals, which of course has a, a huge effect on someone's physical and mental health. And we heard stories of people doing things like skipping every other day of medication because they they were trying to ration that out so they could meet other bills like rent and electricity. So definitely a, a pretty big impact on physical and mental health. Um, particularly when it comes to isolation and loneliness as well. And my fear is that we, we're only beginning to understand what the real fallout of that will be. So, you know, as we look at the report itself, it makes some recommendations to address, address the issues that were found. Can and, and when will those be implemented, do you think? What can we do moving forward now that we have this information? Mm, great question. So 
First and foremost, we know that systems and policies need to be responsive to people that live in poverty. And that is the medium and long term strategy. But in the really short term, we need to make it really easy for people to access the information and supports that they need. Um, what we found in this study was that a lot of uh, the systems, even like CERB, uh, were really confusing. And so people found them hard to access. And so we need to make services really accessible to people and we need to make sure that people um, have clear information for example about vaccines and how to make sure that they're on top of their health and the third thing i would say is that as a community reach out if you have not talked to your neighbor or your coworker, if you there's someone you haven't seen you need to reach out to them and you can always refer them to 211 for example so that people are connected to services and connected to one another that's going to be our biggest risk coming out of the pandemic is that we've lost a lot of people who've lost those traditional formal and informal connections mm-hmm. I'm wondering, Megan, when it comes to the research in this study and this report, it's interesting to me because often when we hear about stats, it's just numbers and, you know, nobody Mm. wants to be a number. But it sounds like you have a lot of personal stories and and anecdotes when it comes to Calgarians who were hit hard by the pandemic. So, So was this a different type of study as far as really getting to drill down and hear some of these stories? It was, and we were so lucky to work with Dr. Katrina Malini at the uh, University of Calgary Cummings School of Medicine to get the stories. And you're so right. Sometimes we look at these numbers, and when we hear lots of numbers, you know, on the news, for example, in the morning, it becomes easy to lose sight that there's people attached to these numbers and families attached to these numbers. And so we really wanted to make sure that we were keeping that that human face and understanding that human experience of this pandemic because those people are our neighbors and our friends and, you know, understanding that what it really looks and feels like to be a member of a racialized group and to be scared to access a vaccine service or to be somebody who um, is extremely food insecure and does not have enough food resources to last to the end of the week and what that hunger has felt like for them, we feel um, can really help people connect to what the issue is in a different way outside of the numbers. Yeah, it's just, again, another reminder, isn't it, Megan? Just we need to be kind to each other, to our neighbours. We have no idea, for most of us, we have no concept what it might be like to try and skip a meal so that there's food on the table for, you know, the next day kind of thing. And, and, and we really need to pay attention to that. That's happening right here in our very own city. It is, and it's happening in, in the places that we might not suspect. So it's happening behind the doors of, of that bungalow on your street. It's happening throughout the city. We know that there's poverty in every ward, and it's not just, uh, you know, sometimes we traditionally think of it as a downtown problem. It's not that. It is the people that we know that might not tell us that, um, that they're struggling. One of the things that the study found was that all these participants who answered were below 35000 in terms of income. A lot of them had lost their job or found it hard to find a job. And most people were between two weeks and 10 months behind on their bills. Wow. And having to make all of those trade-offs in terms of food to pay rent, for example, are very real and everyday realities for a lot of Calgarians. Do we know, uh, Megan, and obviously the title of uh, the organization, Vibrant Communities Calgary, but do we know how Calgary stacks up to to other major cities, maybe even in our province like Edmonton or Vancouver and Winnipeg or looking east and west? It's a great question. So, um, you know, from from the poverty perspective, we do see a lot of inequality in Calgary compared to other cities. And by that, I mean we have um, a big gap between 
the number of people that are wealthy and the number of people that are living in poverty. Um, so sometimes in a statistic, it looks like Calgary is, for example, the third most unequal city in the country. With that said, Calgary has all the tools and a great foundation to absolutely be vibrant and to come out of this pandemic differently. We have the Enough for All Poverty Reduction Strategy, um, which everybody in our community owns and can contribute to. We also have a really caring and kind community that wants to look after its neighbors and comes together to help in a time of crisis. And I would argue that this is our next crisis. We can decide how we want to come out of this pandemic. We can we can come out of it bringing everybody with us or we can come out of it leaving a lot of people behind. And that's really up to us. And I think we're up to that challenge. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Megan. Really appreciate your time. Great conversation. Thank you so much. That is Megan Reed, Executive Director of Vibrant Communities Calgary. And you can go online, enoughforall.ca, to get more info. A new report spearheaded by Natural Resources Canada talks about the impact of climate change on rural and remote communities. We're joined now by one of the authors of the report, Dr. Kelly Vauden. Good morning to you, doctor. Good morning. Thank you for taking the time with us. Dr. Vauden, we saw the tragedy unfolding and how it uh, ended up in Lytton uh, last week uh, during what turned out to be a record-breaking heat wave. Is this a result of climate change or is it just weather? Well, when changes occur over a long time period uh, and and there's a trend that can be observed, it's, it's climate change. Certainly we have certain particular weather events that occur, but we have seen an increasing, um, increasing intensity of extreme weather events and increasing prevalence of these extreme weather events, including droughts and heat waves. And, and so that's linked to climate change. So no individual event is, is entirely linked, but certainly mm-hmm. we see trends that contribute to these kinds of extreme events. And is that what you sort of look at is, you know, that word intensity that you use? I mean, we saw records broken by, you know, four or five degrees. That's unusual, isn't it? Yes, and that's, uh, that is one characteristic that of climate change that we see more intense and more frequent extreme weather events. So uh, I guess, you know, more frequent as of now, can we expect it to continue on into the future uh, or will it flare up or was, are we going to consistency see, uh, consistently rather see these extreme dry conditions and the heat that we were witness to in the past couple of weeks? Yes, unfortunately, I think one of the things we can count on is uh, more, more of the same and, and more intense and more frequent. So um, certainly being prepared for these kinds of extreme events and really look, learning from each each of these events and what we can do to better prepare because adaptation while mitigation is also important uh, adaptation is the focus of our report and that's all about understanding the changes that are happening uh, anticipating expecting them and trying to prepare for for future both these extreme events and, and conditions but also the ongoing changes that are occurring that affect Things uh, like livelihoods in rural communities, but certainly the agricultural community is one example of, of some of the rural communities that we spoke about and how farmers and ranchers and uh, watershed groups are, are watching the changes that are occurring in climate and trying to adapt their practices through, through new technologies and management strategies, for example. So to dig a little deeper into that, can you give us some examples of, of how, you know, this climate change, for example, that we're talking about this extreme heat for, you know, one idea is how does it affect people, particularly in rural or remote areas? What's the difference there? Well, one of the points that we make in the chapter is that while climate change is affecting all communities in rural and remote communities, 
there's a disproportionate impact for a few reasons. One is that people in rural and remote communities often depend uh, very much on their natural environments that they're part of for their livelihoods, but also for their, their cultures and way of life. So um, because of that strong connection with the environment, as the environment changes with climate change, people in rural and remote communities are very much affected. So uh, everything from how they make their living to just how, how they uh, do the recreational activities or, or socialize uh, in communities. So uh, that impact is there, but also the ability of communities. So we do talk about the, the local knowledge that exists. So there is a lot of capacity in these communities in terms of understanding people that live in rural and remote communities. They see the changes that are occurring. And so there's a lot of knowledge there uh, that we can gain as Canadians as a whole about climate change from rural and remote residents. But also many of these communities are small and they have more limited technical, human, and financial resources to be able to uh, monitor changes and uh, in particularly using you know, uh, tech- technology, for example, or to respond when there may be expensive adaptation measures required. So we also talk about, uh, because of those limited resources in these communities and limited capacities, the need for post-secondary institutions, for example, or different levels of government to, to support and work in partnership with rural and remote communities. So they're more vulnerable because of that increased dependence on the environment, but then also uh, the limited resources often to be able to respond. Like planning is very important. I talked mm-hmm. about the importance of monitoring changes and, and responding. That often requires planning, and, and many of our small rural communities don't have municipal planners, for example, uh, of their own. So in those cases, it may make more sense to have a regional strategy where multiple communities are working together, uh, maybe at a watershed level, to to plan uh, ahead for climate change. But those kinds of supports are needed often for small rural communities. We talked to you know about you know the fact that it does hit these smaller communities hard. We talked about those people who earn their living off of the land and the impact that has. But I'm wondering, Dr. Vaughden, if we could talk a little bit more about the economy on a broad scale, because often we talk about how uncomfortable it is and the effect on the ecosystem, but the economy and the impact that this climate change and these weather seem to seemingly sudden and extreme weather changes can affect the economy as a whole. Certainly, and that's another point that we make, that uh, there's certainly a strong rural-urban interdependence. So when rural communities, uh, when their economies are affected often, we, it affects food supply for the whole country, for example. Uh, our export products often rely on rural areas, whether it's you know, mining, uh, oil and gas, again, food supply, agriculture and food supply. So uh, Canada as a whole uh, remains, and, and many of our provinces, uh, resource dependent in many ways, particularly uh, for exports. So when rural and remote communities are affected, or the forestry resource is another example, when those natural resource sectors are affected, it affects not only those communities and regions where people are working in those sectors, but also the country as a whole and its economy, certainly. And, and that's one of the points uh, in the chapter. There are other chapters in the National Issues volume that talk about the costs uh, of of climate change and and also the advantages of climate change adaptation and being very proactive that that if we can we can it's cheaper to uh, to be proactive and to do our best to respond and to adapt these industries and communities mm-hmm. ahead of time as much as possible um than it is to, to respond reactively to to these impacts which are happening and will continue to happen into the future so we really just need to under, 
try to understand the changes that are happening and, and do our best to adapt our sectors. For example, yeah. we looked at uh, things like how agricultural producers are changing their practices and products. And, and similarly in forestry, trying to understand how forest uh, mixes will change in different provinces in order to adapt the, the sector over time. Can't bury our heads in the sand. Climate change is a reality. And uh, thank you very much for the uh, the discussion. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. That is Kelly Vauden, Professor of Research at Environmental Studies at Grenfell Campus and Department of Geography, St. John's Campus of Memorial University. Miriam Husser has had a very interesting life doing things most of us could only dream of and many that make Indiana Jones look like a librarian. The author and pilot joins us now. Uh, Good morning to you, Miriam. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Uh, You've written a new book all about your adventures as a pilot. You've had the chance to travel places and see things most of us will never see, including uh, into some uh, war zones. What was it like to look back and and, put your life to paper? Is that sort of a surreal thing? It is. It's very interesting to do it. Um, You know, I have a very good memory of everything I do, and um, so I've never kept a journal, but... um, when uh, last year with the, the COVID crisis, I found myself not able to work, I decided to sit down and start writing it all. Um, I had friends and co-workers all my life telling me that I should be writing it. And uh, so that's what I did. Um, it's very um, weird experience to go back to some moments in my life. Uh, because, of course, there's been some very high, but some low as well. And um, bringing back the difficult times, especially working in war zones, um, yeah, it's it's not easy. But uh, I thought I really had to do it because I wanted to share, uh, especially for people who don't have the chance to do it. And not many of us would. The book is called They Called Me Sky Hunter. So uh, if anybody is looking to pick it up, uh, some amazing adventures for sure. What, what, Miriam, made you want to become a pilot? It's something I can't even tell. Uh, since I was a kid, I was always uh, fascinated by airplanes. Um, and uh, when I was 10 years old, I had a chance to visit uh, an air carrier uh, while I was in vacation with my family in Spain. I grew up in Switzerland. And um, when I first saw that airplane on the deck, I said, that's what I want to do. And, um, of course, I couldn't go into the military at the time in Switzerland. They were not taking women when I was uh, at that age. And that changed since then. But uh, back then, so I went to the the civil way. But uh, with no regrets, because I I had many military pilots who've been telling me that at the end, I've done more than they did. Mm. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, but being being a pilot is one thing and being a bush pilot. But, you know, you spent years in Uganda, Ethiopia, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, tracking wild gorillas. Are, are you an adrenaline junkie, Miriam, do you think? I think I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's what makes me feel alive. Uh, and times like right now, this past year, not doing much, it's, it's hard for me. Uh, staying still, not having uh, that adrenaline rush. Yeah. So, Miriam, are you right now, are you flying water bombers and helping with fighting fires in B.C.? Is that something you're still doing right now? No, I'm not. Uh, I was uh, flying, uh, uh, I was flying three years ago. I was doing some firefighting, 
But uh, then I had to stop due to health. And um, I went back overseas. And uh, a year and a half ago, I was overseas when all the crisis started. And I had to come back. I actually got on the flight last minute to come back to Canada. But uh, no, I would love to go back firefighting. But, you know, so many pilots on the market right now uh, with no job. It's not easy to find mm. a spot. Wow, incredible. Well, we can read your story of your uh, previous adventures before you add to them. We appreciate your time this morning, Miriam. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. That is Miriam Huser. Uh, she has a, a, a website called Mimi, M-I-M-I-H-U-S-E-R.com. She's an author and a pilot in her book. They Call Me Sky Hunter. You can pick it up on Amazon or Chapters and Indigo. This is very cool. We all love fireworks, and they're a huge part of the Calgary Stampede. But this year, to give people a bit more of that Stampede spirit, for at least one night, the fireworks are going to get spread around a bit. Joining us with details is Brad DeZotel, the president of Fireworks Spectaculars. Good morning to you, Brad. Good morning, guys. Well, let's break this down because it sounds like you and your team have your work cut out for you tomorrow with actually synchronized fireworks to go off in Calgary, Edmonton, Red Deer, and Lethbridge. How's that going to work? Give us a behind-the-scenes look. Well, we're actually beginning to set up right now in, in all three sites, and we're obviously well into our setup here on park. And uh, so that'll finish uh, tomorrow afternoon at some point in time. They're all computer-controlled fireworks shows, so it's a matter of synchronizing those computers together, which we have a way of doing that. So when a uh, fireworks show goes off in Edmonton uh, tomorrow night, it'll be identical to Calgary, Red Deer, and Lethbridge, and so on and so forth. And they're essentially a carbon copy of what you'd see on park normally. That's super cool. Brad, you know, it, does it take a big team, obviously, to do something like this, especially when you're putting it together in four cities? Did you bring in people to take over, or do you, do you have that team all ready to go and trained? We, we have most of the team together. We have around 50 technicians that are working today and tomorrow to, to make this moment happen. And uh, so uh, 10 each on site on the uh, kind of the remote sites, and then 20 here on park. Uh, we have a few leads that have come in uh, out of province, and we work with them on other projects, so it's nice to return the favor and bring them in. Have you heard of anything like this happening before? I mean, to me, it sounds fantastic. Um, and, you know, a, a chance for these other cities to taste what Stampede's all about and get that visual representation. But is this a first for you and your company? No, we've done some other big stuff like this before. Actually, for the Stampede Centennial, we took our show on the road within Calgary, and we shot remote sites within Calgary. And then the Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, 100th birthday in 2005, we had a multitude of shows around those provinces as well. So I guess we have a little bit of expertise and experience in it, and, and maybe that's part of where the idea came about. Brad, safety concerns. I know, obviously, the precautions are all in place on the ground, but can you tell us a little bit about how that works, both for the team that is doing it and then for the surrounding areas? Yeah, the uh, safety on a site uh, today and tomorrow is, uh, is about some distance and security zones. We have a safe loading zone, as they call it, and uh, they're loading within that. Before the show, that expands out to kind of a safe viewing area or referred to as the hot zone, if you will. And within that zone, we can't have any people or cars or anything like that. And that's traditional with all fireworks shows. And uh, so these, these shows are designed to be safe and, uh, and uh, should be uh, great for viewing. The, site, the sites are more than adequate to hold the shows. Brad, before we let you go, I've got to ask you this. How does one get into the business of fireworks or pyrotechnics, if you will? I'm assuming you can't take a course at SAIT, for example. What, what, what led you down this path? Everyone kind of has a different story. Uh, you know, myself, uh, I come from an entertainment background. Actually, I used to be in your world when I was young. I was 18 until I was 23. I was uh, on the radio. 
then I uh, kind of fell into it by putting music to fireworks shows and uh, it just kind of progressed from there. And I've been doing professionally since uh, 2001 uh, when I bought the company. In 1997, though, I started kind of uh, doing it on the side. There's a good career out there for Andy if this radio thing doesn't yeah, work out for him, obviously. Light up the sky <laughs> my talent. Better. <laughs> hey, Brad, uh, talk to us. These are very different fireworks from what we get in the store, right? Absolutely, yeah. There's nothing that you can buy that we use uh, in the store. Um, it's all professional-level fireworks. So, you know, these uh, these shows will be capped out about 400 feet high. Normally, we can actually be higher than that, but that's actually what we do on parks, so that's what we're taking on the road. Uh, the stuff you buy in the store maybe is a 100-foot type of product and a much, much uh, less energy in those in those products. Well, very much looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. It will be seen and it will be heard for cities, obviously, kicking off uh, here in the city of Calgary for sure. So thanks for doing what you do, Brad. Thank you, guys. Have a good day. You too. This is Brad Deshotel, president of Fireworks Spectaculars, online at fireworksspectaculars.com. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.